you know you are capable of more because you have a burning desire to get the absolute most out of life. To starve your fears, to follow your dreams, and to realize your true potential. And we are going to do that together. This is The Andy Stort Show. Let's go. What is up, everybody? Welcome to The Andy Storch Show. I am your host, Andy Storch, and I am so excited that you are joining me today because I have a very special interview for you, and it fits right in with our theme because, as you know, this is a podcast where we can come together to starve our fears, to follow our dreams, and to achieve our true potential. And today's interview is all about fulfilling your true potential. Because today I'm talking with Dominic Cortuccio. And if you haven't heard of Dominic, you are going to want to follow him because he has a great message that fits right in line with what we care about, what we talk about here at The Andy Stort Show. Dominic Cortuccio is an international speaker, author, mentor, and veteran of the healthcare, insurance, and financial services industries, and a corporate trainer. After 15 years rising the ranks in the corporate world, Dominic left to start his own coaching and speaking business. He started what he calls a 90-day radical sabbatical and continued with world travel, silent retreats, fitness challenges, and many different things he did to really discover himself and start working with clients to help them become better leaders and avoid that burnout that so many of us have experienced or might experience one day if we keep going down the road we're going down. He's also the best-selling author of the book, Design Your Future, Three Simple Steps to Stop Drifting and Take Command of Your Life. And his message about this is so important. Uh, you're going to hear us talk today about this idea of drift and why and how so many people are drifting in life and what are the things we can do to get out of it and the steps we can take to take control of our lives and our future and live life more intentionally. This is such an important message. Uh, I heard Dominic on a couple other podcasts before I had him on, and I was so excited to get him on here to talk about this. Word to the wise, we do start the conversation actually talking about a vulnerability, a challenge that Dominic had in the past with sex addiction and the program that he went to and the things that he discovered from that experience. And then we transition into this concept of drift. It's really a fascinating, uh, great conversation. I think so, uh, but I'm biased. I'll let you be the judge. So without further ado, I give you my conversation with Dominic Cortuccio. Dominic, what's up, man? Welcome to the podcast. Andy, thank you. Welcome back from Copenhagen. Yeah, that's right. We were, we were supposed to record uh, last week and I, I got a, uh, a late call a few days before to uh, go out to Copenhagen to, to run a workshop, facilitate a workshop over there. And uh, it was a cool experience because I've traveled many places, but I'd never been and even worked for a Swedish company for seven years and I've never been to Scandinavia before. So I got to see a little bit of Copenhagen, which is cool. And I heard you've at least been to the airport. <laughs> yeah, I was coming back from uh, Istanbul and we rerouted to Copenhagen. And when they landed us there, I was trying to get back to New York City. They pull us in front of a bunch of fire trucks and ambulances. And we're like, what the hell's going on? And it turns out they found a camera, a suspicious device in first class that belonged to nobody. Mm. And they were worried that it was a uh, an explosive device. And they found out that it was just some poor schmuck who had left their camera in first class from the previous flight. And they grounded an entire flight of like 600 passengers 
for this. So we got back home safely on our way after about a five hour detour. Oh man, that's one of those that is frustrating and you have to just focus on gratitude and say, at least there are people that are keeping me safe. What if it had been something worse, right? Totally, man. Yeah. So I heard you on a couple other podcasts, the Choose Five podcast and the Dad Edge podcast with Larry Hagner and uh, was just so, I don't know, impressed and really resonated. Uh, All the things you talked about really resonated with me. And I, I thought it was something that I just feel like more people need to hear. And I know you are a, a speaker and a coach and you, you get out there and, and are big on spreading your message. So I wanted to give you that opportunity today. I know you have a book as well. And uh, I'm just excited to talk to you about some of the things that you've been into since you left the corporate world and, and what you're doing to, to change the world today. But uh, for people that haven't heard of you or, or listened to you before, maybe we start with a little bit of your background and, and go from there. Okay. Uh, the quick and dirty. So I spent 15 years in financial services working for a Fortune 100 company called Prudential Financial. I ran a sales team while I was there. So high stakes, very complex business, paid well, very uh, competitive environment. And one day I, I made this decision that like the thing that I really wanted to do was to coach and help and inspire other people. And that was in February of 2014. And I made this two-year plan to leave in February of 2016, which is exactly how it played out. Took my bonus and then went off and did a 90-day sabbatical, traveled the world, zero responsibilities. Saw Hawaii, Thailand, Bali, New Zealand, and Australia. Filled my soul back up. And, and then on June 1st, 2016, I came back to New York City and started my practice as a, as a coach and a speaker and an author. Primarily, that work has been around helping very successful people uh, continue to raise their performance and to short-circuit burnout. And over the last six or seven months, one of the more, more, not more, but like one of the most exciting parts of the work that I've been doing that I'm really passionate about that's been emerging is in the arena of men's work, helping men define what masculinity means for them, and then also a particular focus on sexual wisdom for the modern man. Because most men don't really ever do more than a surface level exploration of their sexual behaviors, beliefs. It's just something that they do in isolation. And that work has gotten featured uh, pretty quickly, like in the New York Times and NPR. And uh, I just took a TEDx stage to talk about some of these things. So it's exciting times, man. That's awesome. And it, you know, it's one of those important topics that has always been kind of taboo, less and less so. Most of us learned about sex from our best friends when we were 13 or 14 years old, and we probably still don't know what the hell we're doing. So, uh, you know, it's good that you're actually bringing that to light and teaching people what's going on. <laughs> yeah, man. Well, it, it, uh, it, it kind of it, it was something that was almost thrust upon me at a certain point in time because to the outward facing world, I was this model of leadership behavior. I was a, you know, I, I was a young guy in the financial services arena, constantly getting promoted at a at a younger age. And the company did very well by me and I was well respected. I treated people well. But behind the scenes, I had this thing that kept all of my emotions together, which was my sex addiction. And it was the only way that I knew how to regulate my emotions. Also, it was the only thing that really made me feel alive at the same time. And at a certain point, it spiraled to a place where I ended up really harming a relationship, the most important relationship in my life. And so in 2013, I entered Sex Addicts Anonymous and for a period of four years, did deep introspective work with groups, with 12-step meetings, with individual therapy, with workshops and programs, you name it. I went in and, and I did a full inventory 
And as I started to shift and as I started to change, so many men around me noticed a difference. So many women started noticing a difference. And I realized that it was something that I needed to speak up about because people who weren't as far out on the extreme as I was certainly were, beha- like, were, were demonstrating elements of behavior like that and needed, and needed a place to turn. And I became their guy. So now I'm speaking openly about it. Yeah, which is awesome because not a lot of people are, maybe more so than ever before. But uh, you know, it's still like this this taboo topic. So going into that, you know, you have this experience where you're going into the the group and you're learning all these things and you're doing a lot of introspective work on yourself. Um, but I know you're uh, an NLP practitioner as well, and I don't know where that came along the journey. But you're you're probably a student of psychology and where other people are thinking and acting. And I know everybody's different, and this is probably a longer discussion. But what are some of the, you know, the key things or themes that you're seeing that people, maybe men especially, are really struggling with that they're just not talking about or getting help with? Okay, wow, I love this question. It's a big one. I look up to Esther Perel, who is one of the world's most well-respected therapists, relationship counselors, and she's an author. I went to her conference recently called "The Paradox of Masculinity." And she said something that really shook me up like in a profound way. She said, you know, masculinity doesn't seem to be this thing that men are just naturally given. Masculinity is not a birthright. Like you have to go out and earn your manhood and then you have to vigilantly maintain it through a course of life's actions, like all the time. And that got me thinking and like, wow, that sounds a lot like how trust operates. You know, you can spend your entire life building trust, and then you can bang, lose it in one instant. All it takes is one instant. And then the same thing kind of holds true for masculinity. Like you can do all of these traditionally masculine things, and then you can lose that in an instant. And that's why you hear things like, you know, don't be a pussy and man up. Are you going to take that? Like in my TEDx talk, I I joke that men can temporarily lose their masculinity by not finishing their beer. Right, like you have been around a group of guys where it's like, yeah, it's midnight. I'm going to go home, and they're like, you're not going to finish your part. Like, you plus. So it's the man it's like card. The man card. And listen, I've been on the other side of that where, like, I've pressured guys, like my buddies, to, to finishing. Like, and all of these little moments seem fun or funny at the time, but when you take them in aggregate, it's kind of like, whoa, all of these regular moments of reckoning that determine whether or not I get to keep my manhood, what kind of effect does that have on my own individual internal compass to decide like what I want to do and what not? Because it seems to be all defined by whether or not another man or men, a group of men approve of my behaviors as being masculine or not. And, And also even sometimes women will be a part of that system as well. And, you know, Esther Perel talks a lot about that. Right. And so the thing that I'm most interested in is, is providing a moment for men to actually turn their t- attention away from the outside world and whatever societal definitions are being placed upon, what masculinity is, these external conquests and achievements, and then just taking a moment, not to cut them off, but just to take a moment to turn inward mm-hmm. and start to really reconnect with like, what do I want? Mm-hmm. What do I value? I was just on a call with... A 50-year-old man who's the head of a billion dollar... He's one of my clients. He's the head of a billion dollar operation at a Fortune 100 company. And one of the things that he wanted to know is, what do I enjoy? Like, what do I like? He doesn't even know the answer to that question right now because there's so many other things on his shoulders and so many other things that people have told him he needs to be. Yeah. So that's something that 
I think a lot of men are struggling with it. When I went into those rooms, Andy, this is a long answer to your short question, but when I went into those rooms, I saw a lot of men who were turning inward and starting to ask very different questions than I'd ever seen before. That's such a big thing. And I, I will tell you, I think a lot about rules and societal norms. And uh, I'm a bit of a rebel. So I like to question a lot of those things. And I think a lot about why am I doing certain things. And that, that goes into what I talk to my children about as well. And why people act a certain way because everyone else acts that way. And why even you know the word shit is a bad word because somebody decided that it was a bad word. I, I just It's so interesting to me. And I want to get into societal stuff because I want to transition from this to some of the things you talk about with regards to drift and, and achieving true potential because I think a lot of that is affected by societal norms and what's going on in the world and how we react to those things. So maybe we can get into that. What is drift? What is this topic that you, you tend to talk about a lot these days? Uh, I love the concept of drifting. But before I get there, we used to talk about rules. Yep. There's an author named Vishen Lakhiani. He wrote the book, The Code of the Extraordinary Mind. And in it, he talks about rules, bullshit rules, right? Yes. These are like bullshit rules that society has, has handed down and these things that like you believe in, like you need a four-year education to be successful. And you know he's revolutionizing the education system because right now, you don't need a four-year right. university degree, right? Like 15% of Google's new hires in 2018 did not have a college education, right? Right. Out of high school. So yeah. Oh man, I'll have to check that out because I, when you said that name, it just lit me up because when I first got into uh, meditation, Vishen Lakhiani was my teacher via his app was the first meditations I did. And I'll always have a fond memory of that. Okay. Well, we got a lot, a lot to talk about there, man. but uh, <laughs> to get back to your original question around yeah. drift, drift is the enemy to living an intentional life. Drift is the enemy to intentionality. And I see drift being the single greatest problem for people living a life of intentionality and getting the things that they want and designing a future that they are excited to live into. And this concept of drift was introduced to me by a man who I consider to be a mentor. Uh, He has no idea that I exist because he's been dead for, I don't know, 50 or 60 years. And his name is Napoleon Hill. Um, Napoleon Hill is an author and... For those people who are listening who recognize his name, he's most famous for writing the book, Think and Grow Rich. There's only 15 books that have ever sold over 50 million copies worldwide. And these are non-religious texts. Most of them are like Harry Potter or like The Hobbit. The only business book that has ever sold over 50 million copies is Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich. And the reason why it was so profound and it's still it still transcends time. And he wrote this like in the 30s or the 20s is because he had a mentor by the name of Andrew Carnegie of Carnegie Steel. And he was one of the richest men of of all time. And Carnegie said to Napoleon Hill, if you want to learn how the rich attract riches into your li- their life, you need to go out and interview hundreds of the world's most successful. So that's what Napoleon Hill did. I think he interviewed like 500 of the world's most successful men and that was like the Fords, the Roosevelts, the Rockefellers. And he mined their secrets. And he basically wrote the Bible for how to attract riches into your life, which is called They Can Grow Rich. And he was kind of like ahead of his time. You know, it's like how Tim Ferriss does Tribe of Mentors and how every podcaster, like, like you know, like what we're doing right now, like you're talking to me and mining my secrets and hopefully like I'm providing some. Like he did this 80 years ago. So like Napoleon Hill was just so ahead of his time. But the most... The more interesting part of the advice that he was given by Carnegie 
came secondarily. And Carnegie said, if you really want to understand the human experience, then you need to interview 10 times as many people who on their deathbeds felt like they had left chips on the table. Like they did not live a life of intentionality and had regrets. And Napoleon Hill found this to be even more fascinating. So over like 20 or 30 years spanning like the Roaring Twenties and the Great Depression and I think the decade after, he interviewed 25,000 people who had those stories. And he mined their secrets and wrote this cautionary tale. It was a bookend to Think and Grow Rich. And it was called Outwitting the Devil. And this book was deemed so controversial by his family that actually they didn't even publish it for like 80 years. It only came out in 2010, 2011, because he takes some real shots at religious institutions and education systems. So you talk about societal norms and he goes pretty hard at both of those institutions. And he has this conversation with the devil. And I remember reading this book during Hurricane Sandy. It was a blackout here in New York City for five days. I had no like heat or electricity or Wi-Fi, God forbid. All I had was a book and a flashlight. And I read this passage that sunk in so deeply, it legitimately transformed my life. And it goes something like this. The devil says, I enter the minds of people through habit. And through this principle, I establish the habit of drifting. And when I get a person to drift, I can lead him straight towards the gates of hell. And what he means by that is that we think we're making these conscious decisions, but we're really just meandering through life in this hypnotic rhythm where we're on autopilot, where our behaviors and our habits and patterns are just kind of like controlling us. We wake up the same way. We go to bed the same way. We react to bad things the same way. We fly off the handle. We continue to do the things we said we were going to stop doing. We don't do the things we said we were going to do. And then one day bleeds to the next one week, bleeds into the next one year, bleeds into the next one decade, bleeds into the next. You wake up and you're like, holy shit, what happened? And I imagine these are a lot of the people, Andy, that you talk to. These are certainly the people that come into my life. They're like, I've got so much to be grateful for. I've got so many of these things around me that I thought I would want, but I feel kind of restless or even empty or feeling trapped. And what Napoleon Hill talks about is like, there are these moments where we finally wake up from our drift, but it's usually something crappy. It's like an outside force comes and thrusts itself upon us. Like maybe one of your children gets sick or you lose the job or your top client pulls its contract or you get like an unexpected illness you can't navigate. And these really, really crappy moments can become some of like the biggest trajectory changers in your life. And I imagine that every single person listening to this podcast has a moment that you can look back on and say, while I was going through that crappy thing and it was torture and I wouldn't wish that hell upon anyone, but that made me the man or the woman that I am today, that's awesome. But my question back to you is, if the only catalysts for change are these outside force thrusting themselves upon you, then how in command of your life are you really? If you cannot be the one who can catalyze change in your life that makes the determination that something is going to be different or I'm going to set a North Star and I'm going to navigate because I said so, then if you can't do that, then you're drifting. And it's all good. Usually when, when I go through this dissertation, Andy, and I'll, I'll shut up in a second, I promise, is, is that uh, is people start to get really hard on themselves. 
because it'll be like, oh my God, in my, in my marriage, I've been drifting. In my work, I've been drifting. In my weight, in my health, I've been drifting. In my parenting, I've been drifting. And what this is really meant to be is a wake-up call and to be gentle on yourself and to say, okay, now that you're woken up, where's the highest point of leverage in your life? Just think about that. You may be rocking and be highly intentional in certain areas. For a lot of men I know, like the, especially the ones that, you know, that I work with, they're, they're highly intentional in their business. But you know, they're absentee at home or absentee in their health. So think about the area, the highest point of leverage that you think you might be drifting in and maybe where this conversation will take us. It's like how you could apply some of these principles to getting yourself back on track to, to live intentionally in that area of your life. Yeah, uh, this is, I mean, it's such an important topic. And, uh, you know, to your point, I had read Think and Grow Rich, but I haven't read Outwitting the Devil and hadn't heard of that until I heard you talking about it on the podcast or I heard you before. And, you know, I can certainly relate to this. Uh, you know, oftentimes people are drifting. They, they seem successful, like everything is going well. And I was definitely there, I think, uh, about three years ago. Uh, you know, six-figure consulting job, wife, kid, another one on the way. Everything looks really good, but just not really satisfied with my career and my life and not knowing where I want to go. And uh, I needed that wake-up call too. And for me, it was another book. It was The Miracle Morning by Hal Elrod, oh, yeah. which I read in uh, January 2016 and completely changed my life. And I've been acting very intentional with everything I do since then, including leaving my job to go you know, independent and now I'm just loving every aspect of my life, but there are always still things to improve. For instance, when I heard you talking about you know, how much people are affected by technology and social media and really starting to think about where am I still drifting there? Am I being intentional enough? So a lot of people, as you said, are maybe they're being very intentional at work, probably the most common thing, right? They're focused on how do I get to the next step of my career and start drifting in other areas you know, for you, it sounds like it was this book, you know, how do people wake up from that? How do they become more intentional with their life so they can stop drifting? I think the, the first place to go is just to kind of ask yourself, like, is there anything on your horizon, right? If you were to look out on the calendar, like, it, or, or even to think about your life, as you look out on the horizon, is there anything that gives you that kid at Christmas type of excitement? If you're you know, if, if you celebrate Christmas, right? Maybe like kid on your birthday type of excitement. And you remember what that felt like, right? It's like, oh my God, I'm going to get that bike or I'm going to get Nintendo. That's the generation I grew up on. Like if there's nothing on your horizon that really lights you up, it's just a future where more of the same is unraveling. Then you probably know that you're in this area of drift. If you don't have anything on the future horizon also that makes you throw up in your mouth a little bit, that like, oh my gosh, there's, there's like a challenge on my horizon, whether it's taking a stage or taking a new promotion or like stepping it up in your love life. If there's nothing that makes you throw up in your mouth a little bit, then you're not playing big enough games. You know what I mean? Like you're not, you're not stepping up to the plate. So those are two good questions I like to ask people. You know, Outwitting the Devil is an amazing book to read to give you some very specific places to look at in your life. Some of the questions that they ask in Outwitting the Devil are, do you publicly or privately criticize other people? And if you're constantly privately criticizing some other people like in your head, it's because chances are you're drifting, right? Elon Musk is trying to colonize Mars. He doesn't have time to sit around criticizing what you and I are doing. There's a lot of arguments as to whether or not Elon Musk is like sustainable, but the guy's got a big vision, right? And he's, he's amazing. He's a genius. He's trying to do amazing things. 
he doesn't have time to sit around criticizing other people. Lots of people have time to sit around criticizing him. Of course. No question. Exactly. You know, we have time to sit here to talk about him. So uh, there's like, there's that, but you know, do you publicly criticize or privately criticize others? Do you have a hard time starting things and finishing them? Like you begin many things, but you finish very few. Are you only catalyzed into action when there's a consequence? So like if someone else is hanging a sword over your head or a guillotine over your head, like those are the only times you get things done. But if you say that you're going to do stuff, it's very hard to motivate and follow through on your own word. Those are areas to drift. So to break free from that, Outwitting the Devil, great book. I wrote my book, Design Your Future, so that you can find out where you are drifting. And it's three steps to break free from drift. And then there's always things like this podcast is like, it's definitely a way to wake up. Going to retreats are ways to wake up. So those are there's plenty of areas where you can bring yourself to awake. Got it. Well, can we talk about those three steps? Because, uh, you know, let's say for all intents and purposes, people are listening and thinking, okay, I've woken up. I want to be more intentional about my life. I don't want to drift. I want to get the absolute most out of life and, and realize my true potential, which is something that I talk a lot about on this podcast. It's all about, you know, starving your fears, pursuing your dreams and fulfilling your true potential, which is so important to me. And I know many people that I try to surround myself with. So how do we, what are those steps we take to really uh, make sure we're going in that direction? That's awesome. I really love the starving your fears. And what I've found in most people that I've worked with is that they're very well aware of certain fears and they're completely blind to the real fears that are holding them back. Totally. And so like these three steps really kind of help to illuminate that. So the three steps, the acronym is ADD, awakening, disrupting, and designing. So the awakening is this moment where you have the aha, like I see something, like I can recognize now that I need to change. There's a difference. The reason why I use the word awakening versus awareness is I think awareness, you can be aware that you might need to change, but you're not ready to take action. And awakening is when you're aware that you need change and you're ready to take action. Cigarette smoker knows that if they continue to smoke cigarettes, like some form of cancer is most likely going to come their way, but still many of them smoke. So there's awareness, but there's no awakening. So the awakening part, let's say you're awakened. Now, what do I do with this? That's where the disruption comes in. So for example, I'm constantly disrupting myself with these like very temporary periods of either abstinence or doing something. I love to start the new year with like a different abstinence period, whether it's, hey, not going to drink for 100 days or 30 days, no TV or Netflix for 50 days. I'm actually going to give up personal development for 30 days because I became a personal development junkie, right? And it was just like, I signed up for one thing no. over <laughs> another. And you know what, man? Like you may, if, I'm if an addict feeling, as well. I'm with you. Okay. So if you're feeling resistance on this, this could be really interesting to you. I, I took yeah. a 30 day, I think it was in May this year, Yeah, 30 days. No books, no podcasts, no workshops or seminars. And I'm like, ah, like this is going to be amazing. I'm going to clear all this space. The first five days of going through that, Andy, I felt like garbage. <laughs> it was almost like it felt like going on a caffeine detox or like a sugar detox. I, I've done yeah. these things before, right? Like I had headaches. I was like lethargic because what I found was that anytime I came up against something that was confusing or anytime I was bored or understimulated, these were the ways that like I constantly sometimes would disappear. It was almost like I went past the point of healthy into this tipping point of escapism. After I, I passed through that, that asteroid belt, because it was a rocky beginning to the month, 
The next 20, 25 days were magic. I developed new keynote speeches that I had no idea, like were, were sitting there just waiting for me to, to kind of like create space for them to come to me. I planned some of the greatest adventures of 2018 during that time. I was able to um, design like the idea for the next book that I'm going to be writing. And it was all because I finally actually cleared some space for my own voice to emerge and didn't have so many other voices in my mind from authors or coaches or whatever. And these disruptions allow you to understand why you do the things you do. And when it's time to move to this final step of designing, now you've got information. Now it's like you've got new insights and you've got new choices. You've created a space between stimulus and response that you can now author what you want this new relationship to look like to your health, to your business, to your relationship life. And, and then in my book, what I do is I offer like a series of 90-day tools that you can use to envision what it is that you want and then how to break that down into like actionable weekly and daily steps. Okay, so this starts with the awakening, which is being aware and being ready to take action because a lot of people are aware that they might need to make a change. And, you know, I've talked a lot about entrepreneurship in the past. And so, you know, it might be that you're not happy in your career and you want to make a change and maybe do something different or work on your own. But there's a difference between that and actually starting to take the steps. Like you put the plan in place to leave your job after two years and actually went out and executed on that plan. So you, you were aware and ready to take action and then started to design that future and then take the action on it. So then after the awakening, you've got the disruption piece because you've got to disrupt the life that you're in and then start to design the future that you want to live. That's very well said. And I'll go back to the story about... Uh, to go back to the very first part of it, the awakening. Yeah. Actually, I was unaware. I was unawakened hmm. at first. And, and here's what happened. I was meditating one day. It was very early on in my meditation practice. Uh, this was in like 2013. And this like feeling came through me I'd never experienced before. It was like this full body. It was like electricity was surging through my body when I thought about this idea of starting my own business and coaching other people. Mm. And it was like, oh my God, imagine if I could do that 24 hours. Like, like that was all of yeah. my job. How amazing would that be? And everything in my body was like vibrating. And then this voice came into my head that said, yeah, but you can never make as much money doing that as what you're making here. And... Boom, like all of that electricity, it was just like someone hit the off switch. And I was like, oh yeah, you're right. Like I make good money now. How could I ever replace that? And I didn't even question the voice. I just accepted it as truth. And so for six months, I did nothing. I did nothing to forward that new idea of, of becoming an entrepreneur. Six months later, this was in February of 2014, that same feeling comes back. And of, of, oh my gosh, I need to go out and do this thing. The vibration came back. The voice came back in my head that said, you can never make as much money doing it. But I, my meditation practice had deepened and I caught it. And I said, wait a minute to this voice in my head. I'm like, who says, who says I can never make as much money? That's like one story of an infinite number of stories I could tell myself. What about if I can make 10 times as much money? And when I said that, like my, my body resisted it because I'm like, well, how could you do that? You know, but I was like, well, just try it on. You know, like wear it around for a few days, see if it, like, you know, if it breaks in, like a mitt, like a baseball mitt, you know, it's stiff at first, but then like you oil it up and you use it, maybe it, it breaks in and contours to your hand. And what I found over the next few days is like I let that kind of wash over me was then I, I got a chance to see like all these people who had done that successfully before, who were out doing that. 
And now the evidence that my mind was collecting was one of success, well, not one of, you can never do this. And so when I had the awakening that it was my own inner narrative that was creating that fear, I had no idea that shut me down. That awakening was then what allowed me to move on to that next step to say, okay, now it's time to disrupt this business and then design what I want for my future. That's so awesome because we, we oftentimes become aware of things that we want to do. We know we want to do something different. I talk to a lot of guys about that all the time that I connect with. Uh, but then there's those limiting beliefs and that huge fear of taking that next step. So you put a plan together and you took your time, but I still imagine the day came to put in your notice and go on this 90-day sabbatical and then start running your own business. There must have been some fear involved in that. How did you move past that? The fear was like why I gave myself the two-year runway. So February 2014 was the decision. February 2016 was the the exit date. And what was really interesting was most people... Here's how I see that stuff go wrong. People think that they need to figure out the how Mm -hmm. before making the decision. So it's like, I need to figure out how I'm going to leave, how I'm going to make money, how I'm going to... And you need to have a certain amount of those questions answered, but you're never going to have all the answers. It's really about like... Am I, am I committed to making this decision? And do, can I give myself enough time where it doesn't feel like an, a full-fledged panic, like a DEFCON 1 situation? And for me, what felt right was, you know what? If I were to say that like these next two years, I could work out all my fears financially and otherwise. If I need to get a certification for coaching that made me feel more comfortable, which I never did. But like if I needed one, I had the time to do that. How do I learn how to market online? I've never done any of that in the 15 years in the corporate space. So I, I have runway to work out all these things that I'd never considered. And so the fear for me, like by the time that I left, Andy, like when I was done on February 26, 2016, I was so confident that I was going to be a runaway success, even though I had no prospects, I had no pipeline, I had no idea where my first dollar was going to come from. I just knew I was going to be successful. And when people would say to me, hey, you could always, you know, like try this and then come back if it doesn't work out. I looked at them like they were crazy. I'm like, no fucking way, man. This is going to be a massive runaway success. I just couldn't, I can't tell you at all how it's going to happen. This shit is happening. Don't worry about it. Yeah. 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 The other way, man, that it goes wrong is that people get inspired and they quit. Yeah. And it's like, I'm done. And then now like you have zero plan. You haven't thought through anything. You're burning through your savings and then you start taking gigs that like you don't really want just because it pays. And now you're creating from a place of scarcity and fear. So because you pulled the trigger too quickly. And then the thing that you used to love now is the thing that like you rely upon for your sustenance and it's not paying you very well. So now you start to hate the thing that you loved and it creates this double down effect. So you have to find the place in between. Yeah. So for you, it was, it was developing that strategy and that plan and giving yourself that runway so you knew you had it. And I would imagine you had some, some financial security there or some savings at the time as well. As I'm listening to you talk and I'm thinking about my own situation and how I make that shift from the fear of what would happen if I take this chance and I fail? And we're talking about you know achieving our true potential, really fulfilling our potential. Is I think I've made the shift to the fear of what would happen if I get to the end of my life and I didn't take the chances I needed to take to fulfill my true potential. Yeah, yeah, man. I, I saw this quote and I, I put this in this in the TEDx talk that I did recently, which is the definition of hell is that on your last day on Earth the person you became meets the person that you could have become. And that one is like spine chilling, right? Like the person you became meets the person that you could have become because it's you played it safe. 
or because you let the the chaos of the day or the fire hose or the fire drills to distract you. And there's always something, there's never time, or you thought you were going to wait until when there was time and there never is. And one of the things that I encourage people to do, there's two things. Like you could do a death meditation, which sounds morbid. Another way of doing that in more practical terms is to write your own obituary. And uh, I'm sorry, not your own obituary, your own eulogy. There's a difference there. Obituary is like just the facts, right? Something you read in the newspaper, it's kind of devoid of any sentimentality. But your eulogy, someone's going to stand up someday at your funeral and read some really nice stuff about you that you're not going to be, you're ever, ever going to have a chance to hear. But what if you lived your life so intentionally that like you knew everything that that person would say? And so I encourage people, and I think I, have, I do have this exercise in the book, there are like six or seven different steps that I give people to consider, which is like, how long do you want to live? You know, like not how long do you think you'll live, but like how many years do you want to live? And in what condition do you want to live those years? What experiences did you have? Don't confine yourself to the modern day, to the present day uh, constraints. So like, you know, you have two young children and you may be like thinking about it from that perspective, but what if like 10 years from now, 15 years from now, when the kids are old enough and they're out of the home, like you can you blank slate it. What do you want to leave behind when you're gone? And when you start to get really clear on how big your life can be and you start to flesh that out, it provides much more intentionality in the present moment. And it can help you to determine some of those decisions that seem really hard to make right now. But when you can attach it to a GPS navigation system, a destination, yep. it makes it easier now. I love that. And I remember when I did that exercise for the first time, uh, was actually as part of a mastermind group that Larry Hagner was was running in the, the Dad's Edge uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, we did that. And I, it was the first time I really thought about, well, where do I want to go with all of this? And laying out, okay, I want to be known as this coach speaker that has impacted you know thousands of lives. And this is where I've gone. And then also kind of defining where I think my kids are going to go, which is, you know, it's up yeah. to them. I don't know. Uh, but my favorite part I remember about that is that my daughter followed me into that business and did the same thing. And that my son became an engineer who actually stopped the robot revolution of uh, 2055. <laughs> so, um, That's awesome. You're welcome, humanity. Speaking of robots <laughs> and technology, uh, before we finish, you know, we're talking about setting intentions and really designing your life and making a plan. But there are a lot of things that can get in the way of that, right? There are challenges that come up and there are tons of distractions. So talk to me about what are those major distractions, especially because technology and social media is definitely one that we can harness to help us along the way or can impede us on our journey. And how do we take control of those things? Yeah, right on. The keynote speech that I get asked to talk about all the time is called Take Command of Your Time and Technology. And when I say all the time, I mean all the time inside of the, like the financial services space, insurance companies, pharmaceutical arena. So a lot of people who are operating in high-stress, intense situations who are tethered to their cell phones, to their technology, and need it to work for them. And what I found over the past few years is that it's an essential part of a person's ecosystem, their, their phone, but it's also this thing that seems to be sabotaging their focus, sabotaging their peace of mind, their stress levels. So when I started to do some deep work around this, I learned that Steve Jobs would not allow his kids to use the iPad when he invented it. The reason why is because he knew how addictive the technology was that he was designing into it. And uh, I think the quote in the book, Irresistible by Adam Alter is, don't get high on your own supply. 
and and then I was like, huh. And then Chris Anderson, the former editor in chief of Wired magazine, would now allow his kids to use screens of any kind in their bedroom and impose strict time limitations on their screen usage outside the bedroom. I was like, huh. Here are these two people on the industry inside who have been really vigilant around some of the behaviors for the, the people they care about, their kids. And I'm like, but out here, it's like the wild, wild west for us. You know, we just, we just use this stuff relentlessly without really giving it a second thought. So I started asking people these three questions about their cell phone use. And I used to get complete puzzled. I still do get complete puzzled answers. The three questions are, how many times a day do you unlock your phone? How much screen time do you spend? So this is not like phone calls. It's like, how much time do you spend looking at your screen on your phone? And then number three, do you know the times of day where like you go down the rabbit hole the most? So like, where are the biggest time sucks? And most people have no answer. Like, the, the biggest answer I get is too much or a lot. And that's correct. But like, you got to be a little bit more precise than that. And what we yeah. found and some of these, uh, there's an app called the Moment app that I've been using for years on iOS, on Apple system. And I think uh, Quality Time has one for Android. And the new iOS update the also... The new tech. iOS has the Screen Time app, which tells you exactly how much you've been using and lets you put limits on all those things, which is pretty cool. I've been playing with it. Which is about time, man. You know, like, yeah. and, and that just came out, I think, maybe two or three months ago. Yep. And it answers those questions for you. It answers like how much screen time. It answers uh, how many times you pick up your phone a day. Because some studies that show that an average business professional will unlock their phone 110 times over the course of the day. So if you're only sleeping six hours a night, which is not enough, and you're awake for 18 hours, you're basically checking your phone five to six times an hour every waking hour of every waking day. Yep. Can you imagine the cumulative effects that has on your ability to do deep thinking, strategic work, focus over the course of a lifetime? Like it's, it's impeding on all of that. And um, there's so much science, so much details that we can go into around like how that's messing you up. But one of the things that uh, I'll share one more story and then I'll go into some of these things that I've put into practice that allowed me to bring back two hours of my time per day. Um, Anderson Cooper was on 60 Minutes and they brought him to a biometric testing facility and they had him strapped up to, to monitor like all the stuff that's going on inside of him. And he put his cell phone just a few feet from him, the face up, and he basically had to just look at his cell phone with notifications coming through, you know, like phone calls, text messages, emails would pop through, flash through. And they would ask him like, Anderson, what are you experiencing? And he goes, what do you mean? What am I experiencing? Nothing. You know, I, I look at my phone, go off notifications all day long. But his body told a very different story. Every time a notification came through, his body would secrete cortisol. And cortisol is the stress hormone. And so cortisol provides a, a proper function for you to be like engaged in the work that you're doing. But if you're pumping cortisol through your system that regularly from morning till night, it creates inflammation. And inflammation is where like you have inability to retain information. It causes high levels of stress. It can cause other chronic diseases. And that's why we're seeing people freaking losing their minds, man. It's a real thing. And that's why like the Center for Humane Technology has popped up and Tristan Harris is doing some amazing work there, like really causing people to wake up about this. But I tell people that if you really want to be in command and, and make sure that you're not losing time and not losing your peace of mind, you need to pay attention to that new iOS system. Like if you have an iPhone, 
you need to download quality time if you have an Android device and like quantify how much time you're spending. I found that my two biggest problem times of the day were in the morning and the evening. So that's where my rabbit holes were. I woke up in the morning 45 minutes right away. Right before I went to bed, an hour. Because it was just like I would go through the scroll and I was so tired. I would be you know, on these things I don't even really care to, to look at. And an hour and 45 minutes, the bookends of my day were spent on my phone. So I moved my phone out of my room. 90% of people use their phone as their alarm clock. You need to get rid of that. Put it in your kitchen. Buy a regular alarm clock. Ask for it for, for the holidays. It will make a game-changing difference. And then turn off all notifications that are not like mission critical. So turn off anything that's not a, a text message, a phone call, an email. Turn off all the notifications on social media and everything else because that stuff is causing you to just break whatever's going on in your day and to, to pop onto your phone. Yeah, it, it makes such a difference. You read some books on time management a couple of years ago and made a lot of changes to get rid of a lot of notifications because I realized how much uh, just the switching can cost you so much time throughout the day. Most people work with their phone sitting on their desk. The morning and evening time, like you said, so important. But a lot of people work with the, the phone sitting on their desk and you're working wow. on a project, the pop-up comes up and you look over. Just the act of looking over pulls you out and it takes you know another minute or so to come back and remember what the heck you're doing. So, so much time is lost. Productivity is lost throughout the day. So I turned off a lot of notifications, but I still had you know texts and WhatsApp and a few different things on. And after I remember after I heard your interview the first time, I turned everything off and it's been a couple months and my life is good. I mean, I still check in from time to time, of course, and I respond to text messages when they pop up. But uh, you know, we don't need to have all those notifications popping up on our phone all the time trying to run our lives when we should be the ones in charge. Yeah. And the notifications are ways to keep you engaged with that technology, not necessarily to enhance your quality of life. And so the the current, the present day design of some of these features, uh, the default is to keep you hooked on your phone, to keep you coming back, to keep you engaged and spending more time on those apps. And that's not most times in alignment with you living a purposeful, intentional, stress-free life. Uh, I don't know if there's such a thing as a stressful life, nor would I ask anyone to inspire, aspire to live to that. But like, yeah. you don't need a stressful life to the extent that most people are living. And so you have to start looking at the design of the environment that your phone is creating for you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I always laugh um, because when you do turn off those notifications, those apps will will bug you about it. So every time I open oh, yeah. up Facebook Messenger or WhatsApp, it's always like, your notifications are off. You really should turn those on to get the most out of this app. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. I see what you're doing here. And uh, no, I don't need it. But they'll, they put pressure on you because they, <laughs> they want you to keep using that app. They want it to be addictive. They want it to be in front of you all the time. It really is amazing. And this is one of those things that is no matter what you're trying to do, whether you're running your own business, you're in a career, you're trying to focus on your relationship with your spouse or your kids or your friends, it pulls us away from that all the time. It's going to hurt productivity. It's going to hurt our ability to stay mindful and present and be you know, with people. And I struggle with this still as much as a lot of people do. But it's, it's something I'm working on constantly. And I hope that people listening to this are giving thought to how much time they're spending there and, and trying to work on that too. So I appreciate you coming on and, and bringing that up. It's my pleasure, man. And maybe one way to wrap this on, on this note is I had a chance to sit down with Tristan Harris, who's the founder of the Center for Humane Technology. And he was a former Google designer. So he was behind the scenes, a developer. So he saw what was going on. He was seeing like the, the, the path that we were heading down where we were just going to be... I guess the thing that your son interrupts in 2050, the, the yeah, robot revolution. The robot revolution, right? right. 
And he's like, there's got to be a better way of doing this. And he likens what's happening now in tech with social media and with the design of our operating systems is that like we're basically, we are becoming Truman Show experiments. Like we are, we are Truman. And like, if you remember like Jim Carrey's character in the Truman Show, when he realizes that he's in a simulation, he has an awakening and he wants to sail outside of that world, that bubble that he's been in. Like we are now actually drifting towards our own Truman Show with the way that you know, we're being marketed to with the way that like some of the ads come through, the way that notifications are automatically populated. So you can drift into that space or if you take command and, and break free from that, then you will chart your own course. Yeah. And there's, I mean, there's more we could talk about with regards to how this is all affecting things, you know, macroeconomically in society. But for the purpose of this conversation, we'll finish on think about your own life and how these things are affecting you. And are you being really intentional with how you're living, how you're acting every day, week and month? Do you have a design for where you want to go? And are you taking action towards that? If you don't, you may want to follow Dominic. Uh, So Dominic, where can people find out more information about you or follow you if they want to do that? Nice. Uh, DominicQ.com, which I'm sure you'll put in the show notes. And then at DominicQ on Instagram. You can find me on LinkedIn under my name. And uh, by the time this comes out, I think my TEDx talk should be should be published. So you can find me, Dominic Cortuccio, and the TEDx talk is uh, the bold journey that women want us to take. Awesome! I look forward to checking that out. And uh, the book is also called "Design Your Future: Three Simple Steps to Stop Drifting and Take Command of Your Life." Dominic, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really loved having you on to share your experience and wisdom, and uh, I just really appreciate it. Hope you have a great day, man. Andy, you too, man. This was a blast. All right, take care. 